2: It was pretty clear that when Prime Minister Trudeau announced his new cabinet a week or two ago, that he wanted change to happen when it comes to the military. That's why there is a new defence minister. It's Anita Anand. And she certainly has not wasted any time in making some changes. She announced yesterday that she has accepted in full a recommendation from former Supreme Court of Canada Justice Louise Arbour that civilians and not military investigators, should handle military sexual misconduct cases. How big of a deal is this? Well, joining us now to talk about it is Amanda Conley, Global National Political Journalist. Amanda, thanks for being with us.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: How big of a deal is this? It sounds like it's a pretty seismic change.
1: This is, I think that it's, this is one of those things where it's certainly fair to say this is a significant announcement. It will be a significant change. We've heard that from experts that we've been talking to over the past 24 hours, as well as from all of the experts and from the survivors and victims, frankly, as well, who came out and spoke, um, who, who shared their experiences during the committee hearings into this crisis for the military back in the spring. They, they stressed again and again that, um, there, there are serious concerns. There are problems that they see with, the way that the military investigates sexual misconduct allegations against its own and our board pointed to those concerns in her recommendation that we learned about yesterday, saying that there is she has heard repeatedly throughout her her investigation of this problem. Um, persistent and and significant concerns from people that really speak to um, the heart of a lack of trust in the military and their ability to actually investigate these problems themselves.
2: Right. And how long has this report from, uh, you know, Louise Arbour been out there? I mean, it seems like people were waiting for the former defense minister to make some of these changes as well.
1: Yeah, this is part of the the questions here that we're still looking at. So again, th- this is a a recommendation. It's not um, a full report at this point. Again, that the full report from her review is not due until um, next spring. This is really uh, seems to be she's put this out here kind of in in the interest, as she said, of putting forward a proposal to kind of address this need for an immediate remedial action here. That there that she has the impression in it from her her conversations that. Something needs to happen. It needs to happen now. And this, of course, was a recommendation that was previously put out in June by another former Supreme Court justice, Morris Fish, who had been probing specifically the military justice system. And he has said that there because of the issues, the concerns that Global News has been reporting on so extensively now for almost 10 months, that um, Removing sexual assault cases specifically from military jurisdiction would be really crucial and had to happen until more significant reforms to that system could take place. Uh, the recommendation from Arbor um, and that Anita Anand seems to be uh, saying she will implement here is broader. It's talking about all sexual misconduct cases. And so really here we're seeing a um, what seems to be, again, a um, significant um major action here coming out to try and get these cases out of out of the hands of the military and that kind of conflict of interest that survivors and victims have said that they they are concerned is taking place.
2: Okay, so is this just the first step? Do we think that more is coming?
1: That's certainly the impression that we have so far. Uh, Global News did speak to Anita Anand, the defense minister, yesterday afternoon, and she she told us that, again, she came into this job with a to-do list of things that she wanted to get going on, um, that this is the first step, in her words, of the changes that have to take place to the military here. And again, we've heard this again and again, that this is a deep-rooted systemic issue through the military. There is no one solution that will fix the problem of military sexual misconduct. It will take a whole range, a whole... Um, systemic approach to changing that culture. And so many of the systems within the military that are that are contributing to and really enabling this problem um, within the military itself. So right. certainly, um, again, this is the first step, but we're certainly watching for, for much more to come, it seems.
2: Right. Amanda, would you, was it fair to say that the Prime Minister has given Defence Minister Anita Anand that go ahead to make significant changes?
1: So that's a little bit tough to say right now. We don't yet have the copy of the mandate letter that has been issued to the defense minister. Those typically take several weeks after they're sworn into their new cabinet posts to get that. We would hope to see that or expect to see that possibly uh, the end of this month, maybe early December, just in keeping with past, past um, issuings of those. But certainly I think we can say that that Trudeau has emphasized in his own comments that there is going to be a broad range of action taken by the government to address this problem that, uh, from their view, they really are looking to Madame Arbour to issue those recommendations. She was tasked really ex- uh, specifically with um, giving steps to the government, actions that they can take to solve this that are based on the the kind of expert advice and the experiences of people in the systems themselves. So um, we, we really are watching for what Arbour uh, recommends and puts out there for any further actions here. But again, um, certainly not the end of it.
2: So lots more still to come, it sounds like.
1: Yes, absolutely. Lots more to come on this on this uh, this ongoing issue, this ongoing crisis, as we've heard repeatedly for the military. And, and it seems certainly this is one part of a number of different issues. Uh, Anon was saying that they're looking to the recommendations that have been issued from a number of past reports as well here. So certainly um, deep systemic issues. And they remain committed to putting in place that independent reporting system for sexual misconduct as well.
2: All right. Interesting times. Amanda, thank you always a pleasure. Thank you. Oh, it's been a very popular story the last couple of days. I guess we all need a little something fun, right? It's all about the couple in New Zealand who may have grown the world's largest potato. Now, if you missed the story, here's more from the Associated Press's Ed Donahue. Colin and Donna Craig Brown were weeding their garden. Colin's hoe hit something.
3: I got the fork and jabbed into it and hoiked it out of the ground and holy snapping turtle teeth. What's going on here?
2: They began digging around the big object. Could it be a giant puffball or a strange fungal growth? It's a potato. A 17-pound potato, the size of a couple of sacks of regular potatoes, or one small dog. This potato is not pretty. Donna Craig Brown says it's got an ugly, mutant look. They've got a name for it, Doug, after the way they found it. They even built a small cart to tow Doug around.
3: Poor feller, he doesn't have arms and legs and that sort of thing, (laughs) so I made him a little trolley so we can take him out and give him a bit of sunshine now and
2: then. Their potato growing tip, yeah. throw a bunch of cow manure and straw on the <laughs> garden and see what happens. Okay, that is Ed Donahue from the Associated Press. So is that how, how you do it? You just throw a bunch of manure on there and some straw and see what happens? How did this mutant potato come about? Well, I think we could probably do a little better than that with some tips. Today's guest for our Science with Simi segment is Dwayne Falk, Professor Emeritus at Guelph University. Good morning, Duane. Good morning. You must love this story.
3: Well, it's kind of a shock and a surprise, but it is a massive potato.
2: (laughs) Why such a shock and a surprise?
3: Well, uh, I grow potatoes, and the biggest one I've ever grown is probably one kilo, or just a little over two pounds. Um, But it was kind of ugly, too. And that's what happens. When potatoes grow... The initial growth is kind of uniform, but then as they keep growing, certain parts of the potato grow faster than the others, so they begin to look like strange objects. And this one certainly does.
2: Oh, yeah, it does. So you're saying that to have a potato this large, I think it was seven kilos, they said, that's really unusual.
3: It is extremely unusual. Um, And I I think the straw and the manure help, but uh, probably the biggest factor is where this was grown. Because it was near Hamilton, New Zealand, which is one of the most interesting, benign, beautiful climates to grow things in the world. Um, It's on an island, which is in a a large ocean, so it has a very moderated maritime climate. It never gets too cold. It never gets too warm. Things just grow. They get a lot of sunshine. They get enough moisture. Um, New Zealand is a fantastic place to grow many things. Now, they were also saying that this potato, the plant itself, may have been two or three years old, which is also unusual. Now, potatoes are perennial, so they'll grow as long as the environment is good for them in most cases. Um, Here in Canada, we have something called winter that sort of terminates their growth when (laughs) it gets a little cold. Um, So we probably don't have a chance of growing anything like this. But uh, this potato was growing in part of their garden that they don't pay a lot of attention to, and they were finally getting around to weeding it, and then they uncovered this giant potato.
2: So could it be replicated anywhere else?
3: um, Possibly. You might be able to do something like this in a greenhouse or a growth room in Canada, but um, you have to make sure that it doesn't freeze over winter, and that there are plenty of nutrients and sunshine and moisture to keep the plant growing, it probably depends a little bit on variety as well. Um, Many of the potatoes that we do grow in Canada are determinant and short-season, so they mature up normally and die down during our growing season. If they don't, of course, winter gets them. Um, Now, this one obviously kept growing for a lot longer than that, so it could be a variety that... um, just didn't terminate itself like our normal potatoes do.
2: Okay, but with your big potatoes that you grew, you said a kilogram, and that's still a pretty big potato to me, right, a two-pound potato. What did they taste like? Did you eat them?
3: Well, they taste like a normal potato. However, sometimes they do have a problem called hollow heart in that the outside of the potato grows faster than the inside, and it creates a cavity inside the potato.
2: Ah, yes. Yes.
3: And that develops kind of scar tissue, and there's nothing wrong with it. It just isn't the same texture as the regular potato. So uh, if potatoes are too big, they're probably not quite as good as those that are regular size. Uh, There's kind of an optimum size. If it's too small, there's too much peel relative to the amount of potato that you get. So they're not worth growing, or they're not worth keeping and, and selling. Then there's the optimum size, which, you know, two or three potatoes make a meal for a family. Or if you get too big, then you start getting into this knobbiness, this uh, unusual growth habit and so on. Plus, one potato is more than a meal.
2: Yeah, I see. I'm fascinated by this part of it, Dwayne, the science of what is the right size of potato, because a lot of thought goes into that, right? Because farmers want to grow the exact right thing.
3: That's right. They want to grow something that it appeals to the consumer. And so it needs to be the right size, the right shape, and in many cases, even the right color.
2: So is that why up until now, we have, like we hear about giant pumpkins, we hear about all these other giant like types of produce, but is that why giant potatoes haven't really kind of been a thing before now?
3: Well, it's kind of like giant pumpkins. They're a novelty. They're, they're something you take to the fair and you show off, but they really have very little commercial value. And giant potatoes, like giant pumpkins, are not very pretty. I mean, have you ever seen a giant pumpkin that you just thought no. that belongs on, the, on a postcard or no. something?
2: I know, I know exactly. No. They kind of look melted. They don't look very good.
3: That's right. Uh, there are all kinds of problems when you get things that are too far beyond their normal range. And the same with potatoes. Um, most of the big ones that we grow are, are very knobbly um, and really you wouldn't really want to try to sell them to somebody. But they're they're interesting, and yeah. I think that's the intrigue of it.
2: And that's the whole thing about this story, right? It just seems like a novelty, it won't really be able to replicate it, but that's why everybody's fascinated with it. Exactly, yep. I love it. Well, thank you for explaining it to us this morning, Dwayne. All right, well... Is like trying
3: to grow one in your backyard.
2: I don't think I'm going to be able to. I live in Vancouver. That's not going to happen. But thank you so much for that. Well, the government is once again attempting to cool down our red hot real estate market in this province. I mean, we thought COVID might change that. No, it seemed to go in the other direction. It just went up, up, up. Created more demand. Now the province is set to introduce legislation in the spring of 2022, and some of the things that are under consideration are a cooling off period for resale properties and newly built homes, uh, perhaps changing or finding some kind of alternative to blind bidding. Uh, So uh, these are all big changes. For instance, a cooling off period, that's like a limited period of time where a buyer can essentially change their mind, cancel the purchase with either no legal consequences or perhaps very diminished legal consequences. So how does the industry feel about these things? Well, joining us now is Adil Danani, who's the founder and principal of Denani Group Real Estate Advisors. Adil, thanks for being back with us.
4: Good morning, Simi. Thanks again for having me.
2: What do you think of these ideas?
4: So I think we're on the right track with this proposal. I think also it's important to deep dive into, you know, what the government is putting forward. If you look at consumer rights legislation and the general practice of a cooling off period, um, this allows consumers, like you noted in, um, in the intro, um, to go through the home buying process with more time. So essentially, they can go through it rationally versus emotionally, which is great. Because if you look at what's happening in the market today, and what you and I have talked about in previous interviews, is that the market remains to be incredibly strong. Um, but I think it's important to break down this policy because there are two distinct markets within our broader market in real estate. So we've got um, new construction, which is referred to as pre-sale, right. Right, where you go and you put a deposit down for a home that's not going to be done for, let's say, two or three years. And then the other component of the market is the resale market, where, you know, of so you would call me you know, um, tomorrow and say, oh, look, I'm thinking of selling my home. We're selling homes that are, that are already occupied by homeowners. So right now in the, in the resale market, the, new, the pre-sale market, the new construction market, there already is a seven-day cooling-off period. Um, which is um, by law called the rescission period. So I think extending that process makes a lot of sense because I'm sure you've seen the headlines in the papers. There's certain markets and certain buildings that are being launched that are selling over a weekend. And buyers really don't have that opportunity. They're buying through, there's a bit of that FOMO, like we have the seven days to go through the cooling off period, but, oh, what if someone else takes our contract or someone else takes our position I think 14 days allows people to think through and go through things more rationally versus emotionally, which is important.
2: Right, but what about you know, the discussion of perhaps changing or finding an alternative to the blind bidding process?
4: Yeah, I think this is very important. Um, I'm very supportive of this. Um, um, our, I have colleagues in Toronto, so I work with Royal Page. We're very um, involved with um, some of these new policies that are going into play. And out east in Ontario, there's a registration process for offers. So if I'm a listing agent on a property and um, I'm expecting a certain number of offers, let's say on the offer presentation date, it is legally registered. So the buyers that are going into the process have transparency as to who the agents are, how many offers are going to be on the table versus just depending on you know, the information provided by the listing agent. So I do think that we're on the right track here. I'm really curious to know, you know more details around that policy. I also think that, you know, if you you look at what we've been chatting about this year, we're again hitting like with this, with um, um, the consumer rights component of it and um, the cooling off period, we're hitting the demand side of the equation. These policies, while, you know, deemed effective, this is a short term attention grabber, in my opinion, for a problem that needs a long term, you know, supply solution.
2: Right. But again, something has to be done. Like you just said, long term, how do we fix things in the short term?
4: Yeah, I mean, we've been looking at different reports. Scotiabank came out um, um, uh, with a report recently that found that Canada has the lowest number of housing units per 1,000 residents of any G7 country. um, And the number of housing units per 1,000 Canadians has been falling since 2016 due to population growth. So I think affordability is constrained, supply is constrained. So we talk about a coordinated effort Um, While I applaud, you know, the the provincial government in putting forward new policies to protect consumers, because that's very important. I think the underlying issue, um, unfortunately, I hate to say it again, is supply. And we just need collaboration, and we need effective policies to really streamline these processes.
2: We also need people to be able to have faith, right, in the system, Adil. Yes. And I feel like people are losing that. Like the the bidding system in particular, that that really takes a lot of the wind out of the sails of people who even think about getting into the market. If they try, if they have to try to participate in the crazy way that some realtor set up that bidding system, it really does make you feel like the deck, da- the da- whole deck, is stacked against you.
4: Yeah, it does. Um, you know, there, there's that notion of buyer fatigue, you know, going into these processes, let alone once, sometimes multiple times we go through it with the same client with an unsuccessful oh, that's outcome.
2: that's crazy. Yeah. Right.
4: So it is it can certainly be very frustrating and very emotional. So I think having something more transparent, a system that goes into place where we actually comfortably know how many offers are on hand, um, I think is going to be very important for the consumer.
2: Now, you said you're generally quite supportive of these rules, but I mean, the real estate industry is pretty large. And let's face it, Adil, a lot of people in this industry have made a lot of money with the market the way that it is. Will it be tough, do you think, to convince some in the industry for these changes?
4: So I'm I'm hugely supportive of the cooling off period to be extended for the pre-sale new construction market. I think we need to be careful by extending, um, and again, I'm curious to know what's put forward or what's proposed, but extending it in the resale market. Because what happens in a market that's heavily undersupplied and there's this euphoric level of activity, you have speculators and flippers that start coming into this market. And what they do, Simi, is if they have extra time, they're gonna go and, you know, quote unquote, tie up a property, right? And try to find another suitor for that property, just like buying a stock, and trying to find another buyer for that stock later. So I think this may actually enhance the speculation, level of speculative activity in our market, especially in the resale market. Because right now, when a lot of homes are selling with a short fuse or a few days for conditions, that speculation can't necessarily take place because the window is very small for a speculator to try to secure that property and try to find another buyer for it because they have three days or sometimes no time. But if the if provincial government comes into play with a policy that allows, let's say, 7, 10, 14, 21 days for a cooling off period on the resale market of used homes, then all of a sudden I think it may actually drive prices in the, in the wrong direction, which is higher.
2: Right. But doesn't it also give you a chance to get, even get something like a home inspection done, A deal, which so many people are bidding on properties without a home inspection clause?
4: So in theory, yes. In theory, this makes a lot of sense. But I think we need to think about this carefully in practice and how will it, in fact, impact consumers and how will it impact the overall growth in price points.
2: Okay, so you're saying there's still some work to be done here. Would, do you think in general the industry would be on board with these things?
4: I think that there needs to be some consultation amongst, you know, the big stakeholders within the industry um, to, to iron out the details of what this policy looks like. I think we're, in, we're going in the right direction with some fine-tuning, and this will certainly be beneficial for the consumer, which I think is important.
0: All right. Well, listen, thanks very much for your time.
4: Thanks, to me. Thanks again for having me.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: How hot are the Vancouver Whitecaps right now? Well, they've had more than 20,000 tickets already sold for their game on Sunday. They are Literally the hottest ticket in town. They will be playing their Cascadia rival Seattle Sounders FC this Sunday, November 7th at BC Place. With a win or a draw, well, the Whitecaps would clinch their first playoff berth since 2017. There's still a few tickets left. You might want to get those right now. And also, just before we talk to our interim head coach here, Vanny Sartini, I just want to point out, you really know you've arrived. Like, you really know you've made it when Will Ferrell makes fun of you.
4: You did a movie with Ryan Reynolds coming out the Christmas. He's now involved with Wrexham and soccer. That's true. Sudeikis so right. is involved with Ted Lasso.
3: You feel like you started something here. I think uh, I'm a catalyst in that regard, and uh, I think Ted's team... Ryan's team and LAFC should all Try to play each other in some way Like a (laughs) a three-team tournament Like a back
4: eight (laughs) (laughs) It's like the Jose Mourinho (laughs) Yes, park the bus
3: (laughs) Vancouver, though, much improved Right? From the last couple years They're very uh... But I didn't realize they had uh, Rowan Atkinson, Mr. Bean As their head coach (laughs)
2: Vanny Sartini, acting head coach of the Vancouver White joins us now. Or should I say Mr Bean? How does that feel, Vanny?
5: <laughs> good morning, Cynthia. You know, good, very good. One <laughs> of the um, famous actors, one of my favorite actors. actually. I love Will Ferrell. Uh, it uh first of all it compliments you because you said the team is doing well. And then uh, let's say that I take as a compliment also to be like Mr. Bean. Mr. <laughs> Bean is something very good to be a comic without uh uh say in a word, so probably it's a compliment it's a testament to my ability to be expressive, let's say like this
2: <laughs> Wow, you really are a glass half-full person I love that, and it sounds like you're going to need that this weekend How is the team doing right now with the pressure? Are you excited? What's going on in the locker room?
5: Well, we're excited for sure, and uh, you know, it's, uh, we have today and tomorrow, the last two training session, uh, and uh, everyone is uh, uh, I would say willing to to do to do their part for the team and uh, it's uh, it's beautiful it's also uh a problem because everyone is doing so well in training that uh now I have a lot of uh Indecision in my mind uh, uh, about the lineup to do, but uh, it's uh, it's a, it's a beautiful problem.
2: Does it also speak, many to the enthusiasm that the team has right now? All the players have right now. I mean, if you've got a an embarrassment of riches between trying to decide who to play, that just does that not tell you that everybody is kind of on board here?
5: Yes, yes, yes. It's uh, and it's one of uh, it's been a, one of our strength in the in these very hard stretches of game that we had. Uh, lately and uh, you know everyone in uh, that follows the league uh, were saying yeah, Vancouver is doing well but now in the last 3-4 games they have a very tough games. they have to go away and uh, uh, it's going to stop this this train and luckily for the moment uh, it hasn't and uh, I would say the most credit is to the player to their togetherness their enthusiasm to their uh, will of uh, I would say doing the uh, right uh, the, the thing that we were trying to do.
2: What do you have to do against Seattle though? Like what, what do we know about Seattle that you have to watch out for?
5: Well, Seattle is a very good team. And, um, what we need to do is, uh, I would say, take, uh, all the push that, uh, we have now with our enthusiasm and the fans that we'll, will will give us and try to be as aggressive as we can and, uh, uh, keep them in their, uh, half, uh, as long as we can, because uh, they're offensive players, they're very good. So the only way to limit them is to uh, make the ball uh, not arrive to, to them. So we need to attack. And when we lose the ball, uh, we need to be aggressive and try to win the ball back as, uh, as fast as we can.
2: So, Venny, how do you keep the team then motivated? Because I know you're trying to get to the playoffs, trying to get to the playoffs, but that's just one part of it, right? You get to the playoffs and then it really starts.
5: Yes, uh the good thing is that that uh if we qualify there's a there's a the we don't play for 2 weeks because everyone <laughs> needs a little bit of <laughs> we, we are so pumped up that if we continue like this I don't know we're going to faint off next week.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well listen, I'm going to be watching. Best of luck on Sunday
5: okay fantastic thank you
2: it is a canadian first the largest single cash gift to an art institution in canada and it's going to the vancouver art gallery thanks to the audain foundation now what will they do with it well let's find out joining us now to talk about that is anthony kindle the ceo and director of the vancouver art gallery thank you for joining us
6: thank you for having me
2: this is so impressive how did this come about
6: well, it was a lot of hard work over a, a long period of time with many people involved.
2: <laughs> and was there a particular reason why the foundation singled out the Vancouver Art Gallery for this donation? What like, what will happen to this money?
6: This money will be used towards the construction of a new building for the gallery in downtown Vancouver. Um, the reason why, uh, Michael O'Dane spoke yesterday saying that... Um, He learned most about art through the Vancouver Art Gallery over many years, and um, it's provided him with many um, really wonderful experiences that really added value to his life, and now he's giving back.
2: Now, I know this idea of a new building has been something the Art Gallery has been working on for quite a few years now. How close are you to getting the go-ahead on this?
6: We're well over halfway there. Our project target is $400 million. Uh, we're, we have currently uh, raised $240 million. So we're seeking $160 million more from all sources.
2: So will you be waiting for that money before proceeding?
6: We will likely be able to proceed probably at 80% of the way there. Of course, you know we'll have to weigh a number of factors. If all goes as planned, we could break ground as soon as a year from now.
2: Okay, so that would be ideal. But Anthony, tell us, why do you think Vancouver needs a new Vancouver art gallery?
6: Well, art is for everyone, and it really adds quality to people's lives. It's the reason we live. It's the reason we work. You know, we, um, art provides opportunities to help people think creatively solve problems, and and that applies to everyone, no matter what their walk of life, where they're from, what their background is, or what they want to accomplish. We see so many great inventions in the world are often inspired by individuals that think differently, and the art gallery allows people to come into contact with that kind of thinking, that creative problem-solving. So it's really a gift to the entire province.
2: So what will this new building be able to do that the current space does not?
6: We'll have over double the size of exhibition spaces. That means that we'll have uh, room to exhibit the permanent collection, which is our legacy, a cultural legacy of British Columbia in over 12,000 works of art. But just as importantly, there'll be five dedicated education spaces. We currently serve over 20,000 school kids a year, but teachers and kids are turned away because we simply sell out and don't have the capacity to meet the demand. This means that over 100,000 school kids a year will be able to have hands-on tours and art-making experiences and so much more. We're going to be adding preschool uh, with a visual arts curriculum for kids 18 months to five years old we're going to have an Indigenous community house. We're going to have artist studios and accommodation for visiting artists and so much more. So it, it's a, it's really a multi-purpose community space.
2: Now, I understand that the design of the building from when it was first kind of unveiled a few years back has has changed, right? It's undergone some transformation. Tell me about that process.
6: Yes, there's been quite a bit of transformation. I think the most evident, uh, you know, the drawings that we released yesterday show that the architects have now worked with a group of Coast Salish, host Nation artists to really incorporate the traditions, the knowledge of those artists that are local, that reflect a Coast Salish worldview. This building will be really a great emblem or a monument to the people that have lived on this coast for thousands and thousands of years I think it's a great act of reconciliation, and it'll be a monument to that for the province.
2: And what happens to the old iconic Vancouver Art Gallery when, if you you know, when this building opens up?
6: Well, it will still exist. Uh, that is to be determined. Uh, the province owns the building, so it's ultimately not up to the gallery. But I I'm confident it will continue with some sort of educational or cultural function or institution. So we're really just going to have more and better.
2: So what's the next step here then, Anthony? You said there's still a ways to go. How do you get there?
6: Well, we continue to raise funds. Uh, You know, we, of course, welcome contributions from all sources. Uh, We're continuing the design development. Um, As you say, there's been a lot of other changes to the design. I think making it more pragmatic, more constructible, more durable, better from a business operating model. So we continue to do all that work and um, just one step at a time, keep moving forward.
2: All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning.
6: Thank you so much. I appreciate it. We took a coordinated approach to attack this network and really this is...
3: um something that demonstrates our ability to hit them before they can expand into other markets.
2: That is Superintendent Duncan Pound with the RCMP saying that 27 charges have now been laid against six people following a three-year investigation into the Brothers Keepers gang in Metro Vancouver. So what else did they net from this three-year investigation? Well, how about 11 kilograms of drugs, including meth, fentanyl, cocaine, drug-making equipment, precursor chemicals, you name it. Well, joining us now to talk more about this is Kim Boland, crime reporter for The Vancouver Sun. Hi, Kim.
7: Hey, good morning, Simi.
2: I know you've been busy working on your book, but I guess you must kind of have to stop and take a look at something like this when it happens.
7: Oh, for sure, for sure. Uh, yeah, I went through all the material yesterday, as did all the other journalists covering this. It's definitely good news. Uh, we did know it was coming because um, I wrote a story about the task force. Last year, and also about a search warrant executed in Surrey specifically connected to Amandeep Kang, one of the men charged yesterday. He, among all the people charged, is an executive member that's what they call themselves of the Brothers Keepers. So he would be the highest level person charged, and the other people would be connected to his network. Right. Interestingly, there were a lot of women charged, which is quite hmm. unusual. And uh, there were also two women charged in loops in a related investigation there. They were getting all their drugs from the Brothers Keepers. So, you know, we're sort of seeing a network that is maybe using people that weren't as traditionally involved, you know, and you wonder if that isn't somehow to avoid, uh, you know, the police or have the police be less suspicious about their activities. Oh,
2: that is interesting. That is so interesting. Definitely a
7: big hit. Definitely a big hit to the Brothers Keepers. Uh, But, you know, it also makes you realize, like, how long it takes to do these intense investigations into drug trafficking. They've got um, criminal organization charges laid against several of the people that have been arrested. And, you know, that's also interesting because they're not going to say, oh, look, you're just running a drug line. It's not just straight, you know, drug charges. Uh, But they're saying they're doing it on behalf of a criminal organization. So that's a more serious charge. And if convicted, that will certainly uh, mean the sentences are longer.
2: Right. I'm sure you've gone to a lot of these press conferences over the years. Kim, was this one like how do you rate this one in terms of what you've seen in the past? Does this seem like a substantial
7: bust to you? For sure, it's it's substantial, and you know we know in so many of these cases. You know, if you see the cross-border ones, uh, you know, police will say, oh, they're charged with shipping, um, you know, smuggling uh, hundred plus kilos of cocaine across the border. But then when you read all the details, they've been active for several years, so you know that there's probably ten times. Uh, or 20 times uh, the amount of drugs that have actually uh, been dealt or smuggled or whatever. So in this case, they got a substantial amount um, of drugs, uh, particularly fentanyl. They say they want to focus on the opiates because we know, of course, with the opiate crisis that, you know, it's been devastating on our community, the numbers of people dying. Uh, but these guys have probably been trafficking, you know, 10 times what has been seized. So this is a disruption for sure, and it's not going to make them go away or make other drug traffickers go away, but it's certainly going to interrupt the supply chain, if you will. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as they said yesterday, likely save some lives.
2: You know, what really struck me looking at this too was just the ages of the people that were charged Mm -hmm. here. We're talking 29, 22, 25, and then another two that they're still looking for are 21 and 21 years old.
7: Well, that's the other thing, too. Aside from Kang, these are not major players in the organization. They're workers in the organization, right? So, um, and associates in some cases, they wouldn't even be members of the Brothers Keepers. But it doesn't matter. It's a good message for everyone to understand that you can't just sort of take on this role running a drug line or being part of a drug line and assume that you won't be touched, uh, by any investigation because, you know, you're not, uh, you don't have the tattoo on your neck or you're, you're not technically a member. Uh, they, these, uh, criminal organizations, whether, you know, it's the murders they're committing or ordering or the drug lines they're running, they use a lot of people, abuse a lot of people. And they're often very, very young.
2: What do we know about the brothers keepers gang?
7: The gang's been around for probably six to seven years. It would still be one of the younger ones, if you will, on the Lower Mainland or operating in B.C. Uh, It was founded by a fellow named Gavin Graywall. He took the name from Wesley Sipes' character uh, in a movie. uh, And, you know, they have these kind of stylized tattoos around their neck. Um, They've had a lot of turmoil within their organization since they were founded, Gavin Graywell got murdered in December of 2017. That is still an unsolved murder. They had a split with some people in their own organization, uh, the Kang Brothers, and they sort of joined up forces with the Red Scorpions. And, of course, a lot of the, the murders and shootings we've seen in the last few years have been related to that, you know, very violent dispute between former um, allies in the Brothers Keepers, right? So, again, this is a great investigation. You know, they've got these drugs off the street. People are facing serious charges. But we know that in the first part of this year in particular, we had a lot of shootings, a lot of murders. Uh, many of them linked to the Brothers Keepers, either, you know, their people were targeted or they're the suspects in the murders. So obviously, people would like to see more charges laid in some of these cases.
2: Oh, yeah, for sure. What what generally happens, Kim, after a bust like this, when the police announce a big investigation and a bunch of arrests? And what happens to the the gang and the organization and perhaps other gangs? Like, is there then a competition to kind of fill that space?
7: Well, even within the Brothers Keepers, there's going to be a lot more people that are still involved in drug trafficking, right? I mean, maybe they're going to have to worry that they might be coming for them next. Uh, and I mean, they know they're under investigation because, as I said, uh, there was a there was a search warrant or a series of search warrants executed uh, in March of 2020 in this investigation. So they know, you know, once there's a search warrant executed, that they're under investigation. And for the most part, they just don't care. They carry on. Um you know, so then right. what, the, what the charges reflect is sort of what was seized at that point in time. You know, there's still been more drugs circulating since then. So hopefully someone like Kang will be held in custody. Uh, there were firearms also uh, seized in connection with this investigation. You know, that should be a factor when it comes to who gets bail and who doesn't. But I imagine a lot of the other people will be released on, on bail and uh, unfortunately, the drug lines carry on.
2: Well, before we let you go today, you have to tell me tell me about this book that you're working on.
7: Well, I don't want to say too much about it. It's still very fledgling, but it will sort of put the gang war of the last twelve to thirteen years in some context.
2: Okay. Well, that's a lot, though. That's a big. That's a big <laughs> undertaking. A, it is a big
7: undertaking. <laughs> it is. A, uh, ironically, it probably won't touch on what's happening now, aside from it being, you know, the spinoff of what we've unfortunately been enduring for 13 years now.
2: So what changes do you think in the last couple of years have happened? You're right, earlier this year, we had all these uh, this attention paid to these shootings. Did that change anything with how gangs operate?
7: Well, these guys often still hate each other and they will uh, usually hire, again, very young people to go and do these hits. Um, it's really hard. It's hard enough to put this kind of an investigation together to sort of get people... Uh, willing to be witnesses in the murder cases is uh, extremely challenging. Um, I do think we'll see charges laid. I think we'll see charges laid in the airport shooting, which was, you know, they're all brazen, but that was particularly brazen, if you will. uh, Last May, where, you know, this fellow from the UN gang was shot to death right on the doorstep of the airport as he's heading in, in front of all these travelers and everything. I mean, It was really stunning. So I do think we'll see charges laid in some of the shootings. But what also sometimes happens, unfortunately, are the suspects get shot and killed before they're charged and arrested in the shooting. So it is a dead-end life. It's unfortunately with us here and has been for some time. And, you know, I don't really know what the answers are, except that, you know, police are digging in and they obviously have incredible intelligence Uh, one uh, quick thing I'll mention is when they started this task force, they actually created a computer uh, model of the key 12 executive members and then all of their associates. And it ended up being like 900 people, which is pretty fascinating, right? And then, but of those, you know, 200 were involved criminally, right? So they're able to sort of, just see, like you might have just a few guys wearing a tattoo and sort of the swagger of the actual gang, right? But there are all these people doing their bidding. And, uh, you know, that actually was, uh, they targeted those 200. And we see now that we have several of them who are facing these charges. So I thought that was a really interesting approach. And it's certainly great at, um, you know, sort of gathering uh, the intelligence necessary to continue Yeah. You know, to go after these gang members and I think they'll do that.
2: That's amazing.
7: Kim, thank you. Anytime